Welcome to the London School of Economics and the Russian Business Week. Thank you for being here this morning. Let me introduce myself. My name is Philip Perkon. I'm the founder of the Russian Business Week and a master's student at the LSE. I stand before you for a fourth time at what has now become one of the most important Russia-oriented forums in the academic world. The Russian Business Week was founded to provide the international community with an objective image of the Russian Federation, its business, its politics, and its modern society. Our forum has grown from hosting five speakers in 2008 to welcoming more than 30 speakers of the highest ranks from the political and business arena this year. More than 2,000 delegates have visited our forum over the past years. The RBW has now become a recognized name in the world of business discussion. The fact that we have so many speakers attending our forum shows that Russia is open for debate. Russia is increasingly integrating into the world community and that the much spoken about modernization process is mounting its pace. Interest for Russia is growing and we see this by the number of people who have turned up today. Over the week, we will seek to provide our visitors with unique first-hand views and opinions on the most relevant economic developments, the most interesting initiatives, and the most attractive opportunities that Russia has to offer. The Russian Business Week will show you a modern, a progressive, a hard-working, innovative, open country, a forward Russia. I hope that the Russian Business Week will satisfy your interests your curiosity and answer your questions. I hope that after this week you will be able to form an independent personal view of Russia. It is an honor for me to welcome Minister Lavrov to speak at the opening session this year. And without further ado, I would like to invite Peter Sutherland, the chairman of the LSE Court of Governors, to formally introduce Minister Lavrov. Thank you very much. Thank you, Philippe. Um, after that uh, introduction, not for the first time in my life, I feel totally redundant. But as Chairman of the Court of Governors, let me welcome you, Minister, back to LSE. You were last here in, in March of, of 2005, and we're delighted that you've chosen to come back here at this time. And uh, we look forward to what you have to say. All of you, of course, know of Mr. Lavrov's history as a diplomat, uh, having postings in many parts of the world, but particularly in the United Nations, and uh, his service there from 1994 to 2004 uh, is something that I think deserves particular comment. But his uh, role as Minister for Foreign Affairs in Russia is, of course, of great importance throughout the world, and we listen, uh, we will listen with bated breath to what he has to say to us today. Minister, thank you very much for being with us. Will you take the floor, please? Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Sutherland, dear friends. I welcome this opportunity to speak at the London School of Economics, one of the most reputable British universities. Uh, I know that young people from many countries, including Russia, study here and this fact alone creates a very good atmosphere and promotes a broad and open-minded view 
encourage us to be socially active, if I may say so. The modern Russia is a country which transforms using its own experience, using the experience of other countries. And it strives to be a land of new opportunities that is open to partnerships and trade and investments, that is open to civil society contacts and projects in all areas of public life. The main, the main task of our foreign policy is to contribute to comprehensive modernization of the country and transition of our economy to an innovative high-tech development pattern. To achieve this goal, we have mobilized our own political will and resources, but we are ready to close interaction with our partners. We understand quite well that they do care what kind of Russia they are dealing with. There are all necessary conditions to make the modernization of Russia an all-European project, as was the case during the reforms of Peter the Great. This project could become a major input in the efforts to overcome the consequences of the global crisis. And this is the essence of our partnership for modernization with the European Union and its, and its key members, as well as other partners in Europe, Asia, and America. I believe today the development issues have become a priority for all the states in the West and in the East, in the North and in the South. As in the previous uh, three centuries, I think, Russia is prepared to assume its share of responsibility for the global state of affairs. We have no great power ambitions, nor do we suffer from the inferiority complex. We are committed to finding solutions to existing problems based on the rule of international law, balance of interests, and common sense. To this end, we actively participate in various collective mechanisms for managing international relations at the global and regional levels. This includes, of course, the United Nations, but also G8, G20, Commonwealth of Independent States, and various integration grouping, uh, groupings on the post-Soviet space, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, BRICS, and others. This uh, network diplomacy reflects the emergence of a new polycentric world order which would be more equitable, more democratic, and more sustainable. Teamwork philosophy underlies the entire Russia's uh, diplomacy. Having long abandoned ideologically charged policy, we opted for a pragmatic and multi-vector approach to the promotion of our national interests. In a rapidly changing world, one can efficiently deal with global threats and challenges only through the broadest international cooperation. The scale of these challenges suggests that we pursue a positive and syner synergetic agenda and abandon suspicion and prejudices, which undermine mutual trust and make it difficult to cooperate. Last year, the leaders of the countries in the Euro-Atlantic region succeeded in significantly improving the climate in the area. Relations in the field of security are changing, displaying the spirit of cooperation rather than confrontation. Areas of common interest are getting wider. And there is a chance to start genuine movement towards our common goal of ensuring stability and prosperity in the entire Europe, where there would be no dividing lines and where all countries would feel safe and secure, irrespective of whether they are members of military alliances or not. The outcome of the last year's NATO-Russia Council Summit in Lisbon, of the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe Summit in Astana, as well as the new START treaty concluded by Russia and the United States, have sent <coughs> encouraging signals and reaffirmed that there is an increased understanding of the need to work together, pursuing a more constructive Euro-Atlantic policies and shaping today's partnership based on mutual trust and commitment to the principle of the indivisibility of security. 
What matters now is to translate this positive trend into specific actions, make the indivisibility of security legally binding. That's the essence of President Medvedev's proposal to negotiate a treaty on Euro-Atlantic security. We must not miss this chance, as we regrettably did more than once over the last couple of decades. Much will depend on how things will go with the European missile defense. We call for carrying out this project on the basis of equality and synergy of both NATO and Russian capabilities. This will test sincerity of all our joint declarations about willingness to cooperate and respect each other's security concerns. We have already acknowledged that we pose no threat to each other, but a new level of confidence can be achieved only through practical collective work to reach common objectives. For the first time in many years, the new window of opportunity seems to make it possible to overcome finally the legacy of the Cold War and start shaping a truly united Europe. We are prepared for this serious work. Both Russia and the United Kingdom can and should contribute to, the, to its success. We are also ready to develop further relations between our two countries. We see no reasons why those relations cannot be closer, more confidential, and strategically stable. <coughs> Neither the Iron Curtain nor the Berlin Wall divides us any longer. All in all, we have much more in common between us than it might seem. Maybe here lies the reason why, despite all the differences between our countries on various issues, we stood together in the face of common challenges, sometimes of existential scale. This was the case in the years of 1812 uh, through 1815, during the First and Second World Wars. You know how much those wars cost Russia. As for the Cold War, I would consider it as a time and space warp in European and world politics. From the historical perspective, it's only today uh, that Europe and the whole world are emerging from the epoch launched by the First World War. This truly European catastrophe, the root causes of which are yet to be fully realized. All sacrificial predetermination of the tragic fate of Europe, shared also by Russia, was expressed with an impressive artistic force by D.H. Lawrence in his story, England, My England. Its secular but essentially deeply Christian approach seems to be much needed in today's Europe. It is in our hands to ensure that all victims of the European history of the 20th century become redemptory. Today, when the world is witnessing the passing of the last imperial temptations, Russia and Britain are all the more doomed to be together in the face of common threats. I would like to mention just one of them, international terrorism. The tragedy in Domodedovo airport last January 24th took lives of citizens of six, six countries, including one from Britain. Unfortunately, our cooperation in counterterrorism has not been developed lately and not through the fault of Russia. At the same time, political dialogue between Moscow and London is gaining momentum. Top-level contacts have set the right tone for the multifaceted British-Russian intercourse. They will be maintained this year. We are looking forward to Prime Minister David Cameron's visit. It is quite realistic to expand our interaction on the world stage. Today, together with Secretary Haig, we have uh, seen once again that our country's vision of such important issues as Afghanistan, Middle East settlement, non-proliferation, countering piracy and confidence building in Europe are close. We also agreed to continue our coordination in the Security Council and other United Nations bodies. Our economic cooperation has good prospects. Great Britain is unfailingly among Russia's five major investment partners. 
There is an agreement among the oil giants Rosneft and BP, which in fact amounts to a strategic alliance, opens unique opportunities for strengthening partnership in various areas, including scientific and technological cooperation and creating innovation industrial capacity. Together with our British partners, we have identified six areas of diversifying our business relations. They are financial services, high-tech, energy and energy efficiency, support for small and medium-scale enterprises, cooperation in the continued use of the Olympic infrastructure and improvement of the business climate. Undoubtedly, facilitating mutual travel by our citizens is a key prerequisite for success. We took note of the Prime Minister Cameron's declaration in favor of introducing a visa-free regime for the trips of Russian citizens into European member states of the Schengen zone. We hope that the same approach will also be applied in our bilateral relations since UK is not part of the Schengen space. The lack of a full-fledged bilateral agreement in this uh, sphere is hampering contacts in humanitarian and cultural fields as well as among representatives of uh, civil society. So I think that's what I wanted to say uh, for starters. Uh, I would like to point out that in conclusion that today we have a real possibility to open a new page in the history of our relations, and I believe there is a common understanding that stronger and future-oriented bilateral ties have no reasonable alternative. Thank you very much. Shall I take it? Whichever you prefer. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I, would, I would now like to open uh, the panel, the discussion, which should now follow. I would ask everybody who wishes to uh, ask a question to put it concisely and to identify yourself when you're making uh, your point. Can I have the first uh, question? This gentleman on the left. <clears throat> Minister Lavrov, uh, Mark Sloboda, International Relations Department, LSE. Um, modernization is the uh, current buzzword uh, in Russian politics. It seems to be the president's favorite word. Uh, but by any accounts, Russia entered modernity decades ago uh, under the Soviet Union. Uh, critics have said that modernization is just code for economic liberalization and the privatizations and weak foreign policy of the 1990s. What does modernization mean to you, and uh, how would it influence foreign policy? Well, uh, the modernization agenda embraces all avenues of the life of the country, including the foreign policy. The foreign policy must create the best external conditions uh, to implement the program of modernization, which has been put forward by the president and which concentrates on promoting uh, key sectors of uh, innovative economy uh, with emphasis during the first phase on such things as nuclear energy, uh, general energy and its efficiency, outer space, uh, medicines, pharmaceuticals. Uh, this type of things where we do have some competitive edge uh, and where we can use uh, technologies uh, from our external partners to put those ideas which we have into products. Uh, making uh, external conditions uh, favorable for implementing our modernization plans means uh, several things. 
It means that we need safe and secure surroundings, and that's where our initiatives on promoting Euro-Atlantic security come from. It also means that we want our business uh, to be represented uh, in, uh, in the world markets on a non-discriminatory basis so that we can uh, promote partnerships between uh, Russian companies and foreign companies uh, in implementing the projects outside Russia but also inside Russia. And I am glad that apart from uh, Rosneft BP strategic alliance, uh, there are already good examples uh, at the level of uh, Russian and British companies. Uh, Gazprom Shell uh, has a strategic partnership arrangement. Uh, Shell is also talking to Rosneft on the energy efficiency package, which, is, which looks very promising. Uh, Thomas Cook concluded a joint venture arrangement with Russian in-tourist uh, company. Uh, so there are examples where we introduce uh, new approaches, approaches which are based on pragmatism and the desire to exert uh, advantages which would be mutually beneficial. And of course the modernization in the uh, foreign relations also means uh, that we want uh, to make the travel for our citizens as free as possible uh, and also to make uh, the travel of foreigners into Russia uh, comfortable and also free uh, on a mutually acceptable basis. Uh, this is just, those are just a few elements, a uh, few, few examples how the modernization uh, reflects upon the Russian uh, diplomatic activities. And I do believe that uh, it is not a slogan uh, to hide plans uh, for another privatization, frankly. Uh, we understand the urgency of modernizing our economy. Yes, we have good ideas. Uh, no, we cannot, uh, we don't know how to put them into products which would bring uh, profits. And that's where alliances are really important. Uh, and we also uh, understand that we cannot rely uh, forever uh, on uh, hydrocarbons and on raw materials. We want to diversify our economy, and that's why uh, ideas like Skolkovo Innovation Center, which, by the way, is being implemented with the participation of uh, British companies, and we would like this participation to expand. Uh, that's where uh, specific proje projects are being developed between Russian and British companies in pharmaceutical uh, area. Uh, diversification is the key to our success uh, as a state in the new, very competitive world. So I can assure you that this is, uh, this is for serious uh, intentions, not just a cover-up for something else. Fourth row. <coughs> yes, you. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Lavrov. <coughs> Teddy Nicholson, also International Relations <coughs> Department. I was wondering if you would be able to comment on the events we've all been so excitedly watching in the Middle East, particularly the revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt, and whether, how Russia has engaged and uh, whether Russia will engage in the future, in the near future, with the new regimes as they form in these two countries. Well, certainly we're, we're concerned uh, with the events uh, taking place in the Middle East. You mentioned Tunis and uh, Egypt, but there are also other countries already uh, where uh, there are 
popular movements uh, for change, uh, Algeria, Jordan, Yemen, um, Iraq. I think that uh, the countries in the Persian Gulf are also very closely watching uh, what takes place uh, in the neighboring states. Uh, well, we don't want a Middle East which is destabilized. We don't want a Middle East which, uh, which is a problem uh, for the entire world. It's a key region of the world. Uh, its uh, history knew so many dramatic developments uh, that I hope, I would hope that by now everyone would realize that it is in no one's interest uh, to uh, ignite any tension in the region. Several factors, I believe, uh, played into the creation of conditions for uh, what we are seeing now. Uh, social and economic uh, problems, of course, uh, is one of them. Uh, unresolved nature for many, many decades of the Arab-Israeli conflict is another, in my uh, very firm conviction. And um, the main thing now is to avoid simplistic solutions. I don't believe uh, that we will help a lot uh, to stabilize uh, the place and to promote uh, popular rule, uh, democratic rule, if we would, if we would be encouraging uh, one side or another, uh, either to tighten the grip on the situation uh, or uh, to accept immediately uh, democratic values of the West. I don't believe either of these extremes is going to work. What is necessary is to encourage the parties themselves in each country to talk. And this is happening, uh, this happened in Tunis, uh, this is happening in Egypt, uh, and I hope that uh, others who have not yet seen uh, such dramatic events would draw conclusions from this situation and would uh, take some preemptive measures. Uh, the last thing I want to say on this one, I already mentioned unresolved nature of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, some people say, well, now that there are disturbances in the region, we shall freeze the efforts uh, to agree between you know, Palestinians and Israelis, between all Arabs and Israelis. I think it would be a huge mistake. I think it's the other way around. Progress on Palestinian-Israeli track uh, could be not the only factor, but certainly a very important factor uh, in promoting uh, peace in the region, in promoting uh, social stability. Uh, many uh, revolutionaries whom you watch every day, uh, among other things, uh, invoke uh, the uh, unfulfilled promises uh, of a Palestinian state. And extremists and radicalists are certainly speculate on this and try to ignite more and more tension. So I think the, the sooner we achieve uh, some positive changes in the peace process, uh, the better for the region. And I'm glad that uh, about 10 days ago, meeting in Munich, the quartet, uh, the Middle East quartet, uh, Russia, US, EU, and the United Nations, agreed to intensify the efforts of the four, of the four players. Uh, with the parties, but also with the Arab League, uh, to see what we can do urgently to, to overcome this impasse. And we're meeting exactly in one month in Paris uh, to take stock of this situation. This gentleman here. <coughs>
Alexander Sidukov, uh, Department of Economics, LSE. Uh, Sergei Viktorovich, what in your opinion should be done to resolve uh, the conflict between Russia and Japan? Uh, I, I wouldn't call it a conflict. I mean, uh, we have been cooperating in so many fields, uh, economy, culture, uh, humanitarian areas. Uh, I just received the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Japan uh, last Friday in Moscow. And yes, he confirmed uh, his position on the peace treaty territorial issue. Uh, I confirmed our position. And, uh, and this was not, this was not uh, a game stopper, if you wish, in the negotiations. Having reaffirmed our positions, we uh, sit down and started discussing uh, practical things. Uh, practical things being, you know, economic cooperation uh, to develop uh, the Russian uh, Far East and Eastern Siberia. Uh, including, by the way, the uh, Kuril Islands, any of them. Uh, President Medvedev, some time ago, when he met uh, Prime Minister Naoto Kan, invited the Japanese business uh, to invest in joint ventures with Russia uh, on the Kuril Islands. And Minister Maihara uh, told me in Moscow that they are ready to consider this invitation, which is a welcome change. Uh, before the Japanese friends refused to discuss this, uh, of course he said he doesn't want, you know, potential cooperation on those islands uh, to be uh, used to compromise the official legal position, and no one is going to compromise the Japanese position, just like no one is going to compromise our position. Uh, Japanese companies are investing in Russia. I think all major uh, uh, automobile producers uh, have opened up their plants uh, in the Russian Federation. There are other industries uh, which are represented, uh, machine building for agriculture, for example, for construction industry, uh, many other things. And uh, the annual festivals of Russian culture in Japan are a hit, uh, just like the Japanese uh, performance uh, visit Russia every year, several times every year. And there is no inhibition to promote this uh, cooperation and to enrich our bilateral ties. Some time ago, uh, one of the previous Japanese governments said, well, you're missing a chance because if you resolve the territorial issue, the Japanese investments would, would flow into Russia in a big way. They are flowing in a big way. And I believe the business is uh, making its own uh, conclusions, is taking its own decisions, and the governments of, two, of the two countries must, must uh, hear what the business wants and must create uh, uh, comfortable conditions uh, for the mutually advantageous uh, projects. As for the uh, peace treaty issue itself, um, there is no way uh, to start discussing anything until and unless our Japanese neighbors do what every other country did already, namely recognize the outcome and the results of World War II. Uh, when they say that they do not agree with these results, and they say this from time to time, uh, we don't understand uh, their position at all. After all, they uh, signed and ratified the United Nation, Nations Charter 
which in one of its articles clearly says that the results of the World War II are not negotiable. So the choice is uh, theirs. Uh, they say that this is not acceptable. We say that our sovereignty is not for discussion. Uh, but we are ready to talk. And if we can talk on the peace treaty issue uh, without trying to exert uh, some uh, one-sided uh, historical uh, advantages, if we talk honestly, uh, I believe uh, this is the way to, to, to proceed. I propose to Prime Minister Mayahara that we uh, create some sort of a group of scholars uh, like we have with, for example, uh, Poland, Germany, Lithuania, some other countries, to discuss uh, common history. Uh, he said that this would not be uh, in, uh, in the interest of Japan, that they, they, that they don't see any advantage in uh, creating such a format. Uh, well, we cannot uh, really uh, impose upon them uh, any of the uh, ideas, but I think it would be useful for the public opinion in the two countries. Uh, in any case, this would be much more productive than uh, becoming hysterical every time a Russian president, a Russian minister, a deputy prime minister visits the Kuril Islands, which are the Russian territory. Madam, yes? Uh, Professor Margot Light, uh, International Relations Department and Global Governance. Um, this Medvedev, uh, President Medvedev's proposal uh, for a pan-European security organization has been battered backwards and forwards and discussed at various levels. I wondered whether you see any progress having been made and whether you think that there will ever be any kind of outcome to that. Well, I, I, I certainly see, see progress being made. Uh, one sign of such progress is the uh, invitation uh, from our NATO colleagues uh, to convene a NATO-Russia summit. Another sign of progress is um, the renewed interest in OSC, uh, including uh, in the comprehensive approach to security, which is uh, underlying the OSC activities. And the principle of comprehensive security has been all but forgotten before the Medvedev's initiative was introduced. The initiative is very uh, straightforward and very simple. And when people say that we don't understand what you mean, uh, don't believe them. Everyone understands fully, because it's, it's the simplest way of uh, suggesting a foreign policy idea. Uh, some 10 years ago, uh, at the end of the 1990s, and in the beginning of last decade, in the context of OSC, uh, in the context of uh, creation of the NATO-Russia Council, the presidents, the prime ministers, the leaders of all our countries endorsed the principle of indivisibility of security. And they even uh, developed it in, in some more words, saying that uh, no country should increase its security at the expense of security of others. We solemnly pledge. Uh, those political declarations, unfortunately, did not work because the indivisibility of security did not uh, happen uh, in quite a number of situations, uh, including the war against former Yugoslavia, one of the OSC member states. 
it, the indivisibility of security did not manifest itself and was not taken into account when NATO was expanded, uh, in spite of the fact that there was no Warsaw Treaty left, no Soviet Union left. Uh, so NATO was uh, in, expanded on inertia, trying to mark the space vacated by the former Soviet Union, so to say. Uh, we believed it was, it was not really helpful, especially since, uh, among other things, it created a crisis in the uh, uh, arms control in Europe, the CFE Treaty, Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, uh, after it was adapted, uh, was ratified in the adapted version by Russia and uh, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine, I think. But the NATO members decided not to. And in the process, we have been uh, sticking to the limits agreed on the basis of the existence of two uh, opposing groups in Europe. But one of those groups disappeared. Many of its members became the members of the uh, North Atlantic Atl Alliance. But the limits of the conventional arms allowed for them have been accumulated by NATO, and this balance was huge, and it still remains huge. So this type of examples, and I can go on uh, with others, with others uh, just made us convinced that the principle uh, of indivisibility of security, uh, that no one should expand his security at the expense of the security of others, doesn't work as a political declaration. So we suggested a very simple thing, uh, to sign a treaty making this principle legally binding, and developing some instruments to make sure that whenever uh, some participant of the treaty uh, feels insecure, that uh, this participant can ask for a conference to convene and to listen to uh, the concerns. The idea is to invite uh, to such a treaty not only all countries in the Euro-Atlantic region, uh, of course all European countries, uh, US, Canada, but also the organizations which are active in this area in the security field. NATO, EU, uh, Commonwealth of Independent States, uh, Organization of Collective uh, Security Treaty, OSCE, uh, maybe even Council of Europe, because some of the aspects uh, of, of security uh, relate, of hard security, relate to the humanitarian issues because they might create humanitarian uh, difficulties. And that's, that's the offer which is on the table. When we uh, started discussions in OSC, NATO-Russia Council, in, in our dealings with uh, EU, we have been told that uh, it's not necessary because allegedly it provides our initiative, uh, assumes the need to create some new organization, which is wrong. We don't want to create anything uh, from the point of view of a new organization. We don't want to eliminate any of the organizations which I mentioned, including NATO, we are realistic. Uh, what we want is to see whether everyone was sincere when uh, in the, during late 1990s, the presidents and the prime ministers were solemnly signing uh, these political declarations, committing themselves politically, but not legally, to the principle of indivisibility of security. Uh, but you know what we heard uh, privately from, but there is no secret, I believe uh, all those who uh, follow the situation know that this is the case. 
when we are when we have been asking our NATO partners, some of them at least, what was the problem in our approach, uh, they eventually said bluntly, it was decided in NATO that legal guarantees of security can only be given to NATO members, uh, which is um, last century, which is Cold War logic, and it's very unfortunate. But we don't lose uh, patience. We continue to promote this dialogue, this discussion. Uh, many of our counterparts do not feel comfortable, and they, I think, started thinking about it. Uh, at least the principle of indivisibility of security uh, has been confirmed in the declaration adopted in Lisbon during uh, NATO-Russia summit last November, but again, as a political commitment, not, not as a legally binding principles. So there is an obvious uh, contradiction in approaches, uh, lack of consistency, and we will continue. This gentleman here with, yes? No, him. <laughs> not me. Thank you very much. Um, Alexander Dubin, I'm a PhD student in international relations. I just wondered if you could say a few words about how the Russian leadership perceives the People's Republic of China, which is growing at its borders rather steadily, and uh, whether or not you would say that there's been a shift of foreign and uh, economic policy momentum uh, towards East Asia in Russia. Thank you. Well, not only Russian leadership, uh, but the entire Russian people perceive the People's Republic of China as a great neighbor. We have one of the longest uh, land border. Uh, we have developed uh, relations of strategic partnership and cooperation. Uh, we have very close ties in uh, economic trade area. In the uh, area of energy, of course, including uh, hydrocarbons, but also including uh, more and more uh, nuclear energy. We develop uh, cooperative relations uh, between the uh, civil societies. Cultural events take place in both countries regularly. People-to-people uh, -people exchanges. And we, of course, are very close partners with China uh, in uh, several formats like Shanghai Cooperation Organization and BRICS, which used to be BRIC, but with the accession of South Africa next month, uh, it, will, it will be abbreviated BRICS. Um, that's that's what, what happens. I mean, <laughs> we are very close uh, neighbors. Uh, and, of course, uh, counter-terrorism is encounter drug trafficking operations in the context of our bilateral uh, relations, but also in the context of Shanghai Cooperation Organization, is a very important component of our uh, relationship. Uh, of course, we are members of the UN Security Council. We are permanent members uh, with China in the UN Security Council, which also creates another very important uh, format for close cooperation in international and regional matters. Uh, as for the uh, East Asia, uh, Russia is uh, looking uh, forward to deepening our cooperation. We have long established uh, relations with uh, ASEAN. We are one of the ASEAN dialogue partners. And in that capacity, we meet regularly with ASEAN 
at the Russia-ASEAN ministerial meetings and Russia-ASEAN summits. The last one was last fall. Uh, last summit was held last fall in Hanoi. And we also participate in the ASEAN Regional Forum, which includes all ASEAN uh, dialogue partners, including the United States, the European Union, China, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, India, others. By the way, in that format, for the first time, uh, there was a meeting of ministers of uh, defense of ASEAN and its dialogue partners held last year, uh, which is a new development. We welcome it very much. Uh, we also, of course, APEC is not entirely limited to East Asia, but it's an important structure in the region. Uh, and last year we became, we joined ASEM, uh, Asia-Europe uh, Dialogue. Uh, and last year, again, together with the United States, we have been accepted as full participants of East Asian summits. Uh, the formats in the East Asian region are quite numerous. Many of them overlap uh, by way of membership and by way of the agendas. And I think that eventually uh, the streamlining of these formats would, would take place, but it must come naturally. Russia is certainly interested in, in uh, promoting uh, deep cooperative relations with East Asian countries. Quite a number of them are also a source for our modernization programs. Uh, they also are interested in investing and doing business with the Eastern Siberian and Far Eastern parts of Russia. Uh, Bilaterally, we have developed many projects uh, with China, Japan, I mentioned it, answering the previous question, uh, Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. Um, so this is a part of Asia and Pacific, uh, one of the most dynamically developing uh, regions of the world. And we uh, want to be part of this uh, integration uh, developments. Plus, another element of our interest is uh, security in the region. There is no single security structure like OSC, for example, in the Euro-Atlantic. Uh, but there are uh, several dialogue formats to which I referred. Uh, plus, there are several military alliances, US, uh, Japan, US, Korea, US, Australia. Uh, every now and then there are ideas that, you know, they might get together into one block, uh, not just bilateral alliances. Uh, it would be a pity if we start creating uh, dividing lines and again, uh, ensure, uh, uh, again introducing different levels of security guarantees. Some countries would be protected by legally binding commitments, others just by political statements and declarations. So I think in the context of East Asian summits, uh, which we will formally join this year. Our president would participate together with President Obama. As I said, US and the US and the Russian Federation have been admitted. Uh, given the uh, participants uh, list in East Asian Summit, and that's ASEAN plus China, uh, India, Korea, Japan, Australia, and now Russia and the United States, Basically, you have all major players in the region and some uh, informal, uh, to begin with, discussion on how you ensure security in the region, uh, I think would be very much appropriate. By the way, together with China, during President Medvedev's visit to Beijing last September, 
uh, we uh, moved forward an initiative uh, to start discussing the security matters uh, in the Asian Pacific region and East Asian region uh, to begin the discussion by reiteration of the very uh, common principles of international law, uh, like uh, equal, uh, indivisible security, uh, like uh, resolution of all uh, disputes by peaceful means, non-use of force, and so on. Uh, so that's, that's what I can say uh, here about this region. The lady in the back row followed by the man in the front row. Uh, Angela Padaraya, Abha State University. Sergei um, Viktorovich, oh. <laughs> a particular question. You have mentioned the Russian aspirations for the visa process. So in this case, my question is, will the present difficulties uh, for Abha citizens holding Russian passports be uh, eliminated in the case of major ease of the whole visa process between Russia and Britain? Uh. Before I answer, may I ask you, are you here on a Russian passport? Yes. So there is no problem for you, uh, right? <laughs> no, I, sa I didn't say it's a problem. I said the major difficulties because I have been refused a visa first yeah. time. And, um, yeah, I know, I know. And uh, I didn't want to make a bad joke. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a problem. Uh, it's a problem uh, which, of course, uh, is rooted in the overall situation in the Southern Caucasus. The situation which uh, resulted from what happened in August 2008, uh, we uh, could not remain idle when our peacekeepers have been attacked uh, by heavy weaponry uh, and uh, artillery and uh, combat aircraft. We could not remain idle when civilians in South Ossetia uh, have been attacked brutally uh, with tanks and hand grenades thrown into cellars where women and children and elderly, elderly were, were hiding. And we, we did what we did. We had no geopolitical agenda. We just reacted to the loss of Russian life and the loss of other civilian lives. And we acted from the desire to, not just to save civilians, but to save the, uh, the uh, South Ossetian and Abkhazian uh, nations. Uh, I say also Abkhazian because uh, during those events, uh, the documents were found in the Kadori uh, Valley of Abkhazia, uh, clearly uh, showing that Abkhazia was next. Uh, so we did what we did, and we recognized the in independence of uh, those uh, two countries, newly liberated countries, I would say. Uh, because we had no other choice to save the existence of those nations themselves. Um, yeah, I understand that you know the European countries uh, they have a different view. Um, I understand that they have a different view, but I don't understand why. Because when you talk to them, uh, not publicly, uh, basically everyone accepts what happened especially since uh, the Taliavinia report was out. The, the report was commissioned by the European Union, and the report contains an objective picture. Uh, 
the main conclusion of the report that Saakashvili started this war, in spite of the public call a few hours before that, uh, that you know he wants a peaceful resolution and he would not order the use of force. Uh, so he lied. He lied not for the first time. He continues lying, and people listen to him and <coughs> call call upon us, you know, to withdraw from Georgia, uh, to derecognize South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and that's where I am really uh, startled because. Even if they <laughs> understand the hypocrisy of uh, President Saakashvili, but still want uh, to support him, uh, this is political choice. But when they tell these things to us, knowing full well that we are not going to change our mind, this was the decision of the President, the toughest decision he took in this position, and to tell us well, this is a temporary situation, you must leave. Apart from politicized approach, this is an absolutely unrealistic approach. And politicians who say this, uh, they, they just, well, I don't believe that they, <laughs> that they believe in what they're saying. But they're absolutely non-pragmatic, non-realistic, apart from being uh, politically uh, immoral. Um, I can, I can discuss uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia for a long time. And we understand the EU, you know, the EU position uh, evolving uh, into, well, closer to reality. And the policy which says, uh, I, I don't remember how it was uh, dubbed in English, involvement without recognition, I believe. And this policy uh, is a step towards establishing contacts with the new reality. And this is a welcome, uh, welcome sign. Uh, we certainly believe that the holders of the Russian passport uh, deserve to be treated equally, uh, be it uh, Slav Russians, be it Abkhaz Russians, be it Georgian Russians. Uh, and uh, that, would be, that would be our position. Uh, I believe that people like you should not suffer. Uh, from uh, what uh, Mr. Saakashvili did uh, when he ordered the killing of the people whom he said he considered as his citizens. This gentleman Thank here. you very much. Um, my name is Martin Carlson. I'm a student at the International Relations Department. Um, um, the last decade saw quite a hostile view from Russia um, about the human security dimension of the OSCE. Uh, for example, in your article in the Financial Times, you criticized the overemphasis on human security in the OSCE. I would like you to comment on how that has developed now and how you see the human security regime in Europe developing further in the future. Well, I never was hostile to the human security dimension of OSCE. Uh, what we were saying, uh, and I alluded to this when I was answering the question on the European Security Initiative by President Medvedev, what I was saying that the uh, three pillars of OSC, the hard security, uh, economic security, and human security, uh, have been uh, endorsed by consensus when OSC was created, first as the Conference on Security and Cooperation, then as organization. 
But before President Medvedev moved his proposal forward about the need to address uh, military and political security issues in much more binding way, before that moment, uh, there was hardly any uh, mention of comprehensive security approach in OSC. Uh, even now, in spite of the fact that uh, in the last two years the discussions have been held uh, quite intensely uh, on the need to reestablish the balance between the three baskets, as, as it were, uh, about 80% of OSC programs and uh, resources are spent on the human security. And uh, in, in those, um, uh, most of this money and efforts is being applied, uh, as they say, to the east of Vienna. Uh, though the humanitarian problems exist uh, to the west of Vienna uh, as well, especially if you take the uh, issue of minorities. We have been promoting the need for OSC to be more involved in the minorities' problems. Uh, some years ago, three of, I think three years ago, uh, when there was an outbreak of violence in France, when two young uh, Arab boys uh, were uh, burned uh, in the electricity booth, and when the uh, violence started, uh, there was a Council of Europe meeting, not OSC, but a Council of Europe meeting where we suggested to discuss not France, not the French problems, but the issue of minorities in Europe, and not necessarily about Russian-speaking minorities in the Baltic states, but just the minority phenomenon in Europe, uh, including its religious aspect. Uh, now I think I can, I can say that the French uh, president called the Russian president and personally asked not to introduce this generic item into the agenda of the Council of Europe. This is just one example how uh, our partners in OSC and the Council of Europe, those are the same countries, uh, from EU uh, are not comfortable um, to discuss uh, the problems in humanitarian area which they face. And whenever you raise this in the OSC or Council of Europe format, they say, look, we have the European Union and we will handle our problems ourselves. In OSC, we will discuss you, Ukrainians, Belarusians, what have you. Um, and this is wrong. This is not the right approach. So what I have been saying, what we have been saying, that OSC must reestablish the balance, not by uh, reducing its involvement in humanitarian matters, but rather by increasing its profile in political and military security and in the economic security areas. And as for the humanitarian agenda, we also want this agenda uh, to be consistent with the mandates which OSC uh, has. One of those mandates adopted uh, during the last days of the Soviet Union uh, one of these mandates is uh, to work towards freedom of movement, including visa facilitation. And that was uh, written as a goal for OSC members upon the insistence of the Western countries. And the Soviet Union, for obvious reasons, was not very eager, you know, to accept this commitment, but eventually it was accepted. Now when we remind our Western friends about their own initiative of 20 years ago and ask them what about freedom of movement, they are shying away from, from, from the discussion. So it's not that we uh, don't want to discuss humanitarian things and human rights things in OSC. It's that we want 
this discussion to be honest and fair. I'm afraid that I have to cut the questioning at this particular point of time. There are a couple of points I'd like to make before the Minister leaves. And um, first of all, I'd like you all to remain where you are until he leaves uh, the room. Secondly, I'd like to ask Philip to come up to the floor <coughs> to make a presentation on behalf of LSE. One is a certificate, but the other is probably even more important. It's an LSE cap, which <coughs> President Medvedev got, and also President Mandela, amongst many other very distinguished people. So if you wouldn't mind taking the cap. <laughs>